uh, try to sing them just now. Um, if you don't, they were um, often sung by um, Nina Simone, who had a, a much better voice than I do. And during the, the civil rights movement um, in the 1950s and 1960s, many people turned to lyrics like those to, to express their, their hope, their longing for freedom. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr., he was someone who gave voice to this desire as well. As he, and uh, not many people know this, but he went off script at the end of his most famous speech to, to talk about his dream. Uh, he uh, said, let freedom ring. And uh, that, that phrase, that idea, it, it captured the, the imagination of, of millions of people. Let freedom ring. And one of the reasons the words, those words still resonate, one of the reasons uh, people still watch that uh, famous speech on YouTube um, is that deep in our hearts is a longing to be free. And this is a point, this is something that the Apostle Paul understood, as we've seen over the past few weeks. His great hope for these Christians that he loved was that they would learn to walk in the liberty, in the the freedom that Jesus had won for them. And it's a theme that that Paul hammers home, continues to hammer home in our passage tonight. It's almost as if Paul knows that you and I find it difficult to believe these things, that we, we struggle to rest. That so often we can be tempted to run back to a slavish way of thinking about our relationship with God. That even if we've been Christians for many, many years, we can still doubt God's love for us. And as we come to a a passage that, that speaks of sons, of slaves, of Sinai, of Sarah, of the Spirit, and even has some singing in it, and uh, then all three of my points tonight are S's, okay? And the first, uh, verses 21 to 23, is the story, the story. In these verses, Paul is challenging people who uh, want to live under the law, uh, people who are trying to justify themselves rather than trusting in what Christ has done. And what he does is goes to battle on the very territory they claim as their own. He's like a general leading his troops right into the enemy's capital, right into the government's headquarters. He goes straight to the law. And I think he's as perplexed in verse 21 as he was in verse 20. He is not chilled out about all of this. It's really serious. You want to live under the law, he says? Well, let's have a look at it. What does the law actually say? Have you read it? And he chooses one story from the Torah. And in many ways, it's the story And it's the story of how God's family began. Let's go back to it, he says. Let's take a long, hard look at Father Abraham and his family tree. 
Now, if you're someone who's a bit newer to the Bible, um, what you need to know is that the two sons Paul speaks about in verse 22, they were named Ishmael and Isaac. And God had promised Abram and his wife Sarai that they would be the founding father and mother of a great nation. But there was only one problem. And they were very, very old. And they were well past the stage of nappies and bottles and bedtime stories. The menopause was a a distant memory for Sarah. And so after hearing God's word, after waiting on what he'd promised and wondering when it would all come to pass, well, they decided to take matters into their own hands. Um, A plan was cooked up. Abram slept with Sarah's Egyptian slave, Hagar, in order to try and build a family through her. The story is told in Genesis chapter 16 and following. And it resulted in the birth of Ishmael. Now, there's lots we could say about uh, that story, about um, the events around it, what we might think of that. But look at the Apostle Paul's take on it all. Verse 23. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. And I think there's a really important principle here. Often in our life with God, often in church life, it is very easy to want to hurry things along, to have as someone once put it, the blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. The blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. And Abram and Sarah were like that. Their theology, their their view of life with God, it could be summed up in six words. God helps those who help themselves. And this whole approach to our faith it is, a, is a frequent temptation for the people of God. We want to get things done. We want good things to happen. We want to see progress. And yet even a good motive and even a plan that might seem godly, well, that can lead to sin. And God's work must be done in God's way. And what is God's way? How does God work? I think God often works slowly. God often works quietly. God often works in a way that seems uh, ordinary. Above all, God works in a way that makes sure that he gets all the glory. God is able to build something out of nothing. Just think of creation. God speaks and all things are made. And he can take situations that are barren, that are fruitless, and bring new life. With God, it is always the way of promise. It is always, I will do this for you, not you. I will leave you in no doubt as I work that I am the one in charge. And Isaac's birth was like that. Isaac's birth was a miracle in contrast to to Ishmael's. 
This is the way God works. We see it all the way through Scripture. God makes promises, time passes, and yet God is still working his purposes out. I think we've seen this, haven't we, in the story of Joseph that uh, Andy has been uh, walking us through. Um, Even in delays, God is still at work. Or think of the story of someone like Hannah in the Old Testament. God doing what seemed impossible. God bringing new life, new hope to someone who'd experienced so much personal pain. Or think of the coming of Christ. Think of Mary. Think of God promising centuries in advance to send a serpent crusher. And yet think of all the time, all the different events that that happened. Think of the founding of Israel. Think of the exodus, the, the wilderness wanderings, all the kings, all the division of God's people, the exile, the return from exile, the centuries of prophetic silence. And then when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Friends, we need to learn this. What is true on the the macro level is true on the micro. What is true in God's big purposes, well, that is true in our individual lives as well. We need to learn to tell, as one old hymn puts it, that God is on the field. God is on the field when he is most invisible. That is that his way is the way of promise. His way is the way of faith, not flesh. That his way is the way of freedom, not slavery. That's our story and that's the story. Second thing that we see in these uh, verses is the symbolism, the story, and then the symbolism, verses 24 to 27. And in verse 24, um, Paul says, what I have just said to you, the story that you all know, the story that I have um, reminded you all of, that can be interpreted allegorically. Now, what is an allegory? Allegory. It's not like an allergy, an allegory. Um, I mentioned collective nouns a few weeks ago. Some of us, when we hear um, terms like collective nouns or allegories, we get a bit uh, nervous. We remember um, English school lessons, all that kind of thing. An allegory is a story with, uh, with a deeper meaning. So, Animal Farm. Um, animal Farm by George Orwell. It's a famous example. It's a story about animals. But it's not really about animals at all. It's a story about communism. And Pilgrim's Progress, I guess, is a bit bit like an allegory as well, isn't it? It's the story of of Christian's journey to the city. A picture of the Christian life. And this story, Paul says, it has a deeper meaning as well. He says Hagar and Sarah, they they symbolize something. They represent two covenants, the old and the new. And their story is also the tale of two cities. 
what Paul describes as the present Jerusalem in verse 25 and the, and the Jerusalem above in verse 26. And these two women, these two covenants, these two cities, they are symbolic of two very different ways of relating to God. They are symbolic of two very different types of people, those who are slaves and those who are free. One of the things that the, I guess this allegory it reminds us of is just how rich the Bible is. Um, the Bible is, is an unfolding story. Um, there, there are themes, there are doctrines and ideas that, that develop as the story develops. You know, one of my favorite um, passages in, in the New Testament is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. You can uh, maybe look at it later on. But as he speaks about the wonder of our salvation, Peter says that, that, that the prophets who came before, men like Isaiah and, and so on, who, who wrote the Old Testament, in one sense, they didn't really understand everything they were talking about. They searched intently to try and find out when and where and how the sufferings, the glories of Christ, We'd finally come to pass. But you and I, we read scripture from a very different perspective, don't we? We read it in light of Christ. We read it after him, after the cross. This is why understanding a Bible passage in its original context is important, but it is not enough. Now, we need to read the Bible um, in light of the whole story, the bigger story. When we read about a king or a shepherd or a priest or a temple in the Old Testament, then we think of Jesus, don't we? And in verses 24 to 27, Paul is, is using this symbolic language to contrast these two ways of relating to God. One is a way that leads to slavery, he says. That is the way of Hagar, of Sinai, of law-keeping. Of, of Ishmael, of the old covenant. And the other is the way that leads to freedom. It is the way of promise, of, of gift, of Sarah, of Isaac, of the new covenant. But maybe if you've followed along with uh, this series in Galatians, maybe you can see something of the irony of what Paul is doing here. And the false teachers were those who claimed that they were really in Isaac's line. They could trace their spiritual descent to him. And yet Paul says, no, you may be of Isaac, you may live in Jerusalem, you may practice circumcision, but spiritually speaking, you false teachers and those who will follow you, you are of Ishmael. You are slaves. And he's telling his friends, he's telling us tonight, he's saying, don't forget who your mother is. There has been a maternity test. You are not children of the slave women, but the free women. And in verse 27, he, he underlines all of this. He quotes from Isaiah 54, beautiful words, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, these verses, they were, they were a prophecy spoken to God's people when they were in exile. And when they were far away from the earthly Jerusalem, they were being told, well, they were being told that there would one day be an even greater Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, a city with far more citizens than had gone before, men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is a city that we sang of in Psalm 87 before this sermon. This is the city that God is building, the new Jerusalem. It's a a cosmopolitan city. Do you like cosmopolitan cities? There is variety, there is diversity, but there is also unity. There is harmony to this city. And what this all points to is what we often call the communion of the saints. The communion of the saints. The author of Hebrews, he puts it like this. He contrasts the old, the new covenant. He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He's speaking of of Mount Sinai here. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is who you are part of, he's saying. And it's a wonderful vision. It's the city of God. It's where you and I belong as God's children. It's a wonderful thing to think about tonight. Sometimes um, in the kind of church circles that we're in, we, uh, we speak about things like partnership in the gospel. And it's a really wonderful thing to have partnership in the gospel with, with fellow believers, other Christians in this city and uh, across Scotland who, who love God's word, who love Jesus. But maybe I can put it like this. Our partnership in the gospel is not just geographical, It is historical. We are fellow citizens of this great city with with believers who are alive now and with those who have gone before us. Those who worship, as someone put it, on another shore and in a greater light. We are united to Christ and that means we are united forever to one another. All those Christians who've gone before us. It's a great thought, isn't it? John Calvin, he said that the church is mother to those whom God is father. And as those adopted into God's family, we have the wonderful privilege of, of that. We are nourished, we are taught in God's church And so tonight, let's not forget who our mother is. And let's not forget our freedom. As Paul says, we are children of not of the slave woman. We do not serve our heavenly father out of slavish fear. 
No, instead, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. We, with countless others, we belong to that Jerusalem above. Well, we've seen the story. We've seen uh, the symbolism. The last thing I want us to see as we look at verses 28 to the end is the significance. The significance. The story, the symbolism, now the significance. What does this all mean for us? Um, I've tried to kind of apply it a little bit as we've gone along. But I think that the big thing that these verses point to is maybe a surprising thing. It is conflict. Look at verse 29. Just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. What he's speaking about here is the way that Ishmael mocked Isaac in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Some of you know that I've got uh, two younger brothers and um, our initials spell war. William, Alexander and Robert, I think uh, mom and dad uh, didn't quite realize what they were doing there and we get on well. But uh, the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael um, described here, it was about more than just sibling rivalry. Because as we've already seen, these two boys, they symbolized something. And what Paul is highlighting, I think, here is the opposition experienced by children of promise, by those who live by faith from those born according to the flesh, those living in spiritual slavery. And this is underlined in in verse 30 as Paul quotes from Genesis 21. And I think the the last five words of of verse 29, they tell us that the, the opposition, the division that is described here is ongoing. It's really important to see this. The conflict is not between the world and the church. That is a real division. No, this conflict that is closer to home. It is a, a conflict between two half-brothers. It is a conflict between the slaves and the free. Between those who live by faith and those who trust in works. And why is it that the fiercest opposition to the gospel, to God's grace, to Jesus, why is it that that the fiercest opposition is not always from secularists, but from people who are very, very religious? Who was it that opposed Jesus most harshly? It was the Pharisees, wasn't it? What about Paul? Why did Paul have to write this letter? Because of religious opposition, slavish opposition to the gospel. 
um, a student gets converted from a kind of nominal church background. They've maybe gone to church at Christmas and Easter. Uh, they've not had family who uh, love the Lord Jesus, and yet they, they think of themselves as a good family. They go to church, they do their bit. The student gets converted, and they're full of joy. And yet they return to that kind of religious environment. And what are they sometimes met with? They're sometimes met with legalism or criticism. Why is it that all of us know stories where someone has gone to a church where there hasn't been faithful Bible teaching for ages and they've done that patiently and lovingly and they've faced bitter opposition? Why does that happen? Well, it happens because though God's grace is amazing, God's grace is also offensive. And though God's grace will make some people sing, well, it will also make lots of people very angry. It is humbling. Through the gospel, God tells us that all of us He tells all of us we cannot save ourselves. No matter how good we might appear, no matter how much religious activity we do, we need to be washed. We need to be forgiven. We are all on the same level playing field. We need to be set free. We need Jesus, all of us. And some people hate that. Some people hate that. But don't let that surprise you. Don't let that shake you when you see it happen. Instead, let this passage, let it remind you that that you have an inheritance that is certain. You have a, a city. Let it show you what you've been caught up into as a believer. Let it point you back to your adoption, to your redeemer, to your freedom. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. That is what Jesus has made possible. Jesus has broken the chains of of our sin, of our shame, of our fear. He has set us free. And how has he done it? Well, in Matthew chapter 27, we read that as Jesus was led away to Pilate, lovely, uh, surprising, wonderful little detail, the text says that he was bound. He was bound. The one who could have called down a a legion of angels to rescue him at that moment, he allowed himself to become like a slave. He was led to the cross. And on that cross, he, he lost his freedom. He was held in place. He was totally restricted on that piece of wood. And he stayed there for you 
and he stayed there for me. He took the punishment we deserved. He embraced all of that for us. He became, if you like, like a slave. And he did it all to win our freedom. And so tonight we say, let freedom ring. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this simple reminder. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And we pray that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on him this week. We pray it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to close um, our service tonight um, singing uh, this wonderful hymn that, that speaks of the great freedom that we have because of Jesus. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's stand and sing together.